You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so pleased to be speaking in the studio with David Marinus. David, welcome. Oh, thank you, T. It's great to be here and to listen to Reverend C.L. Franklin, Aretha's father, singing. (laughs) And that that was part of the the eagle stirring from the nest that you mentioned in your, your wonderful new book, just out with Simon & Schuster, Once in a Great City, a Detroit Story. Um, we meet the reverend early on. <laughs> yes, he was quite a figure, a charismatic preacher at New Bethel Baptist Church in Detroit, but also so popular that his sermons were, were recorded by Chess Records and were heard on the radio all over the country. And he'd actually, he was what I would call a flying preacher. He'd go to cities in the South with his daughters, three of them, including Aretha and some other singers. And they would hold these sort of tent revivals and he would preach and people would shout out, sing, I mean, preach the eagle stirreth its nest. You know, they knew all of his sermons by heart. And they could then, like you said, get them on chess records yes. as well. Um, I'm, I'm surprised maybe um, maybe Barry Gordy got, got into that. Because I know later, because he actually, he pressed um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, early version of the I, I Have a Dream when That's he right. came to march in Detroit. Yeah, Barry Gordy uh, was early on in the spoken word movement <laughs> uh, and recorded Langston Hughes reading poetry and Barry and Martin Luther King... Um, one of the sort of the what I call it the center pole of my book is, uh, is June 23rd, 1963, when Martin Luther King came to Detroit. There was the largest civil rights rally in American history to that point, 150,000 people walking down Woodward Avenue. They arrive at Cobo Hall and King gives the first version of the I Have a Dream speech there before he did it in Washington. And Barry Gordy recorded that Detroit version. 
Do you know, um, David, did, <clears throat> did Barry keep that version in hand until after the Washington March Well, as this well, was or? the great irony of it. Um, it was released on August 28th. <laughs> that was right, it was released right when the March on Washington happened. So everything that happened in Detroit was overwhelmed by, by Washington. The march itself was larger. The speech in Washington is the one that's known by the public. Um, so... Uh, the Detroit speech was sort of washed over into the history's dustbin until, until I well, and people had written about it before, but I gave it a full chapter in my book or two chapters. Yes, two right there in the yeah. right before the the photo section, right? <laughs> which I I love too. This is a great book, David. Oh, I've so been en- enjoying um, reading it so much this this weekend. In fact, um, and I should say we're taping the show on October nineteenth. 2015. And David, you just drove in from Detroit. So you had an event in the city. Yeah, it was a book and author luncheon. Um, They call it the biggest secret in Detroit, but there were a thousand people there. So it was no big secret, not because of me uh, necessarily, but it's a great event. And uh, I've been in Detroit three times since the book came out. And it's been, you know, and I'm coming back again in November and uh, probably after that too. It's, I think that I was lucky in that the book I, was, I didn't plan it that way, but there's a real uh, positive buzz about Detroit right now, and the book sort of hit that sweet spot. And you're talking about the 1962 to 64, this time period in Once in a Great City, a Detroit story, where there there was the upswelling. There was these momentous um, and amazing things happening, mm-hmm. um, which you balance by saying there was also... For example, um, a report released by the sociologists at Wayne State University saying, hey, things are happening to our city that we should be already paying attention to. People are leaving, the productive people are moving out or or so. Uh, Yes. So uh, your book sort of covers these um, great heights (laughs) and these amazing serendipitous and, you know, moments. And then it's also... Starting to say, this is things to come. Yeah, the way I describe it is, uh, Detroit was a an uh, incandescent star at that point, but it was a dying star, and some not too many people could see that yet. But, but as you say, the sociologists at Wayne State in this in in 1963 took note that Detroit was on course to lose a half million people every decade for the foreseeable future, and unfortunately, that's what happened. And that the productive tax base, tax base would be drained and that would have impacts in every different realm of, of life in Detroit. How were they able to see that as a foreshadowing? Like not not just to say, excuse me, that it was happening, but that it would continue to happen. Um, well, um, there were a lot of structural problems in Detroit. You know, some of the, some of the issues that led to Detroit's uh, collapse were common to other urban centers. You know, certainly... Uh, troubles with the school systems and and with uh, urban renewal, which in Detroit many African Americans called Negro removal, be- because it it decimated the traditional black neighborhoods in the city and unsettled them and had ripple effects throughout. Black Bottom, Paradise, yeah, Paradise Valley. Valley, yes, um, and also a lot of that urban renewal was really just to build freeways, freeway systems that made it easier for people to get out of town for a white flight. Um, and then surrounded by these shopping malls, Northland, Eastland, Westland, sort of uh, a noose around the city. Now, some of that is common to other cities, but what was particular to Detroit 
was that on top of this, it was essentially a one-company town, that being the auto industry. And by 1963, the auto industry was moving out of Detroit. Um, factories, of course, around the country and around the world start soon. But also um, sort of emotionally leaving the city. Um, and I think that's as important as anything else. When when I talk to auto executives today, there's there's somewhat of a remorse about turning their backs on the city and and realizing that Detroit, the city of Detroit, was really the heart of everything and that if it collapsed, it would have reverberating effects throughout the industry. And you, so you, you talk about emotionally leaving the city. It seems like, David, you were born in Detroit. You grew up there. You left when you were six and a half uh, yeah. or so. So, I mean, I, I claim it. I was definitely born there at Women's You've, Hospital. And, and lived early there. memories. All of my strongest. Learning to early, swim and read. Yeah, well, swimming was a little traumatic because I would take, I, we lived on a flat on Dexter um, and would take a, I would, my mom would put me on a bus down to the Fisher Y and you'd get into this freezing pool naked with other six-year-old boys and try to learn how to swim. But all the other memories were really, really sweet. You know, uh, Werner's ginger ale and that really strong, uh, you know, going up your nose. You know, I just, I love Werner's ginger ale in the old days. Um, Hudson's Department Store, the Bablo Boat, uh, all of these really early memories are of Detroit and, and really came back to me when I started thinking about this book. And it was an emotional appeal that actually got you maybe to start thinking about this book when you saw a commercial for Chrysler while watching the the Super Bowl? Yes. Um, an odd way to get obsessed about something, but I need to be obsessed to write a book. I was in New York uh, in 2011 watching the Super Bowl on television. An earlier book of mine about Vince Lombardi, When Pride Still Mattered, had been transformed into a Broadway play. So I was literally watching the Packers on television with the cast of Lombardi, which was a surreal in itself. And then at halftime, I looked up. I wasn't paying too much attention, and I saw an ad that had a freeway sign that said Detroit, and I started watching it. And it was that fabulous Eminem commercial Marshall Mathers, uh, where first you see the Joe Louis fist and then the Diego Rivera mural, murals of Detroit industry, a black sedan uh, cruising up Woodward Avenue. It's, it's Eminem in the car. Uh, there's this fabulous backbeat of hypnotic music going on. And then he stops at the Fox Theater and gets out of the car and walks into this gorgeous theater. And there's a black gospel choir rising in song. And Eminem turns to the camera in the end and says, this is the Motor City. This is what we do. I choked up. I literally choked up watching that ad. Um, my wife, a, practi a practical, wonderful person, said, you sucker, why are you falling for this? You know, they're just selling cars. And, of course, she was right. And, and I didn't want to buy a Chrysler, but it got me thinking about what I could do. I'm a writer, so I wanted to write. I wanted to write about Detroit. And it's interesting how, David, this book also fits in with your other studies of the decades around it, your other work. Yeah, I wasn't planning for... that either. I mean, I, as I was finishing this book, I said I, I came to me to be the middle book in a trilogy about the 60s. Uh, first, the, the, the book, my book called Rome 1960, which is about the Rome Olympics, but it's really 
about a new world blooming right then in Rome in that era where you had the third world participating in the Olympics really strongly for the first time. Uh, an African-American carrying the, the U.S. flag at those Olympics, Rafer Johnson. Um, Wilma Rudolph and the Tiger Bells becoming the darlings of the world, this small African, uh, historically black college from in Tennessee. Um, the first drug scandal at those Olympics, the first televised Olympics, so much of the, mo- in the, and of course the Cold War is the sort of dominant theme. So that was my first book. And then on the other side was a book called They Marched Into Sunlight, which is about the, the war in Vietnam. The, and it's uh, two days in October, half of it an anti-war protest at the University of Wisconsin against Dow Chemical Company, the makers of Napalm and Agent Orange. And that demonstration turned into the first violent confrontation. The police w- marched into a building and started cracking heads of student protesters. And at the same time, there was a battle in Vietnam going on where an, an, an infantry uh, uh, battalion walked into an ambush and got to, uh, just destroyed, 60 men killed and 60 wounded. Um, so it's about these two very different worlds, but it's about the same thing, the Vietnam War. So on one end, I have the Vietnam War. On the other end, the beginning of the 60s. And then, then in the middle, this book fits. It's 60, It's the fall of 62 to the spring of 64. It's civil rights, labor, Motown, and cars. And so through those three books, I've sort of told my story of the 60s. I don't know if you're done yet, though, David. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? What are you... Well, I'm certainly not done writing. Um <laughs> You know, even some other books I've written about Bill Clinton, who dealt with uh, sort of, he's of my generation. So that biography is sort of the stations of the cross of his life and Hillary's life. And that goes, of course, heavily through the 60s with civil rights and then into the early 70s with Watergate. Um, But Vietnam is at the heart of that, too. And even my book on Vince Lombardi, the football Mm -hmm. coach, he was winning up in tiny Green Bay during the 60s. You know, this old school guy, while the sort of the world was changing and clashing around him. So that's a lot. I don't know. I haven't, I'd have, my next book might go back further or might go up. I'm not <laughs> sure yet, but uh, definitely it's sort of, you know, I think everybody has a certain part of their life that's formative to them. And for me, as a post-war baby boomer who went through my adolescence and early uh, 20s in the 60s, you know, that's sort of the defining period for me. It's a time. It's a, it's a wellspring. Yeah. yeah exactly. And trying to d- understand it, like to discover things that shape you. Yes. And yes. all of us. As yeah. And, and so this book, you know, this book, it's built in the 60s. But but what it what I'm understanding is my earliest years, even though I'm writing about the 60s, why why Detroit hit me. And so I was there from 1949 to 1956. The book takes place a decade later because I wanted to write about certain events that hadn't happened yet. But you're right in in terms of all books, in a sense, are an attempt to understand oneself and the world around you. And so certainly that's true of this book and every book I've written. David, we'll take a short break and then we'll come back. Today on Living Writers, David Marinus is here. His book out now with Simon & Schuster, Once in a Great City, a Detroit Story. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be right back. Nothing you can take can tear me away from my God. 
is here his book once in a great city a detroit story um as we were saying at the top of the hour this book is covering the years 1962 to 64 david um and before we get back into it and and maybe even talk a little bit about the music which is one of the the great themes or lenses of of the book um i read the short bio in the back and we'll talk a little bit about the writer here okay. <laughs> Born in Detroit, David Marinus is an associate editor at the Washington Post. Marinus is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and best-selling author of First in His Class, a biography of Bill Clinton. Rome, 1960, the Olympics that stirred the world. Barack Obama, the story. Clemente, the passion and grace of baseball's last hero. They marched into sunlight, war and peace, Vietnam and America, October 1967. And When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, which was hailed by Sports Illustrated as maybe the best sports biography ever published. He lives in Washington, D.C. in Madison, Wisconsin. But maybe we can woo you back to Detroit in Ann Arbor. <laughs> David, maybe. <laughs> Madison, uh, well, Madison and Ann Arbor are quite similar in a lot of ways. I love both cities. Uh, did Madison. you go there for grad school, David? or where? Uh, I... No, when we moved from Detroit, we moved to Madison. So, uh, full confession, I'm a Packers fan. But <laughs> but I, I like the Lions, too, but the Packers are my team. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I hate the Vikings, as do we all. <laughs> right, right. Well, now that we've got the, yes. the true confession. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, the music that we heard, we just heard um, Mary Wells. Yeah. My guy. Um, what about the, was it how fun was it to write about the the history the music motown um i think in that chapter how you started it off i loved your first you have to tell me how to pronounce the word is it portmanteau yeah yeah portmanteau uh, portmanteau well, i'm not a french uh, <laughs> linguist either but a portmanteau is um a combination of two words to create a new word and that's how motown came obviously from motor motor city and and uh, in town um, and uh, it was the most fun of the book, uh, uh, undeniably, was because I love the music. It makes me feel good. Um, I got to interview a lot of the, the, the people who are still alive from, from that era, including Barry Gordy up in his mansion in, in Bel Air in Los Angeles and Martha Reeves and some of the Funk Brothers and Marvelettes and different people from that. Mary Wells, who sang that song, unfortunately, is gone. Um, but she was the headliner. the the uh, The book starts in October of 1962 with two events. One is the Detroit Auto Show, which introduced the 1963 cars 
that sold more than any in history at the, to that point. And at the same week, these, this busload of incredible talent left West Grand Boulevard in Detroit, taking the sound of Motown to the, to the country. And on the bus were little Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Mary Wells, who was the headliner, Martha and the Vandellas, um, and the Supremes were the opening act, and nobody knew if they were going to make it yet or not. And the Temptations were along for part of it to sing backup for Mary Wells. So just think about that collection of talent on, on one tour and one bus. Um, and that was Motown. It was really an extraordinary uh, enterprise. And one of the things I tried to do in the book, T, was to try to figure out why. Why these creative bursts of happen in different civilizations, different cities at different times? What was it about Detroit in that era that allowed Motown to blossom? And so some of it is is just Barry Gordy's entrepreneurial genius and the help of his four sisters who were under-recognized, but they were very instrumental in developing Motown. Some of it is the oral history, the tradition uh, come of African-Americans coming up in the Great Migration from the South, bringing with them the oral tradition of song and of jazz and blues. There are a couple of other factors that really fascinated me. One was the geography of Detroit and the uh, demographics of Detroit and the economics of Detroit all made something possible, which was it's a huge city, uh, 28 miles across, mostly single-family homes, People, working-class people with disposable income and a great piano company, Grinnell Brothers Piano, which was the largest manufacturer and retailer of pianos in the country, and it was based in Detroit. And so, so many working-class families with these single-family homes could have pianos. And so almost every musician I interviewed talked about that. And then finally were the public school music teachers. Um who were terrific in Detroit, and every elementary school, junior high, and senior high had a music teacher. And I have to say, one of the thrills of my reporting career, you know, I've interviewed Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and a lot of people in Washington and in, in power centers, but... It does seem thrilling. But when I was David. doing this yeah. book, uh, Martha Reeves was telling me about her senior high music teacher, Harry Beggian, I think his name was, and how he trained them in the fundamentals, in the classics, and and he picked her to sing an, an aria from an opera in the Ford Auditorium in downtown Detroit when she was 16 years old. And while she's, while we're, I've got it on tape, she's, we're doing the interview, she breaks into this aria, you know, and she was 70-something when she was singing, and it was still fabulous, and I just love that. <laughs> and, but it's so music teachers, uh, pianos, Barry Gordy and his sisters, and the oral tradition all added up for this creative burst in Detroit at that time. God, I love that story, David. That's um, the Liz and I actually got a chance to see Martha Reeves perform and her older brother this summer at Sonic Lunch. Uh, they brought the. Um, they were on stage. They closed down part of Liberty to build a large stage and. It was just incredible. She can belt it out. And <laughs> she and her sisters were there. And it yes. was funny because they've been their whole, like a whole life fueled by music. And, and totally. for these these women and the whole family. Yeah, know. no, I love the, the Martha Reeves story. And so she was on that first tour in 1962. 
and then 52 years later. And that first tour's first stop was the Howard Theater in Washington, D.C. Um, and 52 years later, my wife and I went to the Howard Theater in Washington, D.C., re- re- renovated. And there comes Martha Reeves and her sisters, who are the Vandellas now. And we were all dancing in the aisles. I mean, it was great. <laughs> and then later dancing in the streets, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. that is wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's, it really is something about that music and the passion and the creativity, mm-hmm. like you're saying. The, um, and I think it's interesting that, um, you know, even in regards to the, the Ford Motor Company and trying to come up with this new idea, this new car, the secret, you know, and keeping it secret with a marketing firm working on how to release it, um, which would become the Mustang. Yeah, which was the sort of the car of the, that era. Um, the, the, the inexpensive but sexy car of the 60s. And it was conceived out in Dearborn by Lee Iacocca and Henry Ford II and mostly their engineers. Um, and it was the marketing, which was the largest automotive marketing campaign in history to that point, was by the J. Walter Thompson Advertising Agency, working out of what they called the tombs in the Buell building in downtown Detroit, where, you know, it was all secret. Um, One of the fun little stories that came out of that was that the first name for the car was going to be the Torino. And J. Walter Thompson ad agency had developed a whole campaign built around the name Torino, Um, including uh, sort of echoing the future the the th- the theme of it was imported from Detroit because it was, sounded like an Italian car, uh-huh. but that got nixed in the end because Henry Ford II, the president of Ford Motor Company, and quite a rascal, a, a rascal indeed. At that time, <laughs> you know his motto was "Never explain, never complain." Um, was having an affair with an Italian jet setter, and so it didn't. A lot of people in the, oh. <laughs> at Ford thought, well, maybe we shouldn't call it an Italian name, the right. Torino. That might put too fine a point on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the Mustang. I mean, it's hard to imagine that not uh, that not car being, being called, called that, anything else. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So it's iconic. It's part of. Uh, it's become part of uh, just America's whole yeah, fabric. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not totally a car guy. I mean, I although I. Going back to my my time in Detroit when I was six years old, one of my other memories is uh, we lived on a flat on Dexter on the second floor, and my older brother and sister and I would sit out on the porch on that flat, and they would quiz me on the 1955 car, new model cars as they were going down the street. <laughs> that sounds you know, so sort Detroit. Of, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> As a kid, you had to, you had to, to know get your, up to speed. You had to know your Nash Metropolitans and DeSotos and <laughs> right. all of these long gone cars. And I, I love that there's still I, like a cruise like down Woodward, I think, every yes, summer. Yes, I've or, not or, seen that, but it's definitely uh, one of the events of Detroit. Yeah, the cruise, the dream cruise or whatever it's called. Yeah, And it's and that's the thing with your your book too david it's just so it's so strange how there's all the it's just these amazing like i said earlier these amazing things happen but then these freeways being built that will just take everyone away from the city mm-hmm. um and that all of this was happening and and that they were building them through neighborhoods that c- could never come come back again um, you know you'd like to say that it was well intentioned but it had really negative effects and I think that happened in Chicago and 
Cleveland and so many different cities, urban renewal really did not do what people thought it would. It, it destroyed us more than it uh, created. Um, but, uh, you know, when I look at Detroit today, I see it coming back in certain ways. People your age are moving to, down, to midtown Detroit. Um, and if I were a student at the University of Michigan, I might want to go there when I graduated because there's a real cohort there now of foodies and techies and musicians and artists inexpensive. You can create yourself there. The downtown, some mega bucks people are, you know, buying up downtown Detroit and on the positive side, bringing a lot of jobs in and, and, and restaurants and people again. But there's still vast swaths of Detroit that are forgotten and, you know, homes are gone or, or repossessed and there aren't the jobs. And so Detroit is having a renaissance, but until it figures out how to bring more people into that revival, it can't be called a real revival. And, and keep them there and yes. keep building this, yes. this community. Right. It seems like artists are a great hope, like the young people coming in. And I and... think so. I, and, and, you know, there's also an, an urban farming movement, which yes. is very interesting, yeah. um, which I, you know, I really like. And um, there's so there's a lot of there's a lot of really inno- innovative things going on in Detroit. It's a laboratory because it's got nothing to lose. And the rest of the country is looking to and the Detroit, rest of Detroit is looking. paying attention. Yes, yes, very much so. So in that sense, you know, as I'm a, I'm a journalist, I, my, I'm uh, optimistic but skeptical, but I'm optimistic about Detroit in the sense that it, it's starting to move away from just being a symbol of ruin to a symbol of some, some hope. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, um, we'll talk more about David Marinus's great book, Once in a Great City, A Detroit Story. Let's hear another song that David's chosen. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. And we'll be right back. Thank you. 
welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm so glad you did. David Marinus is here today. His book, Once in a Great City, A Detroit Story. Um, David, thanks so much for taking the time to drive over to Ann Arbor. And uh, <laughs> well, I'm happy to do it, and I'm you know this is tape, but I'm appearing uh, on the night that we're taping this at the Ann Arbor Library, so it all worked out perfectly. So it's oh good, oh, oh good. Yes. So it's it's per- oh so actually we've got to get yeah you've got places to be. <laughs> well, we still have a little time yes. together, so we'll just enjoy that. Um, uh, so so David, with a you mentioned the research for this mm. book. Do you mind if we talk a little I'd bit? I'd love of, to talk about uh, that the, process, sure. And your writing process, yeah. maybe. How, cause... Well, I start at the point where I'm lucky in that I'm completely incompetent at everything else in life. But I love every aspect of what I do. I love the research and I love the writing, and I think they're inextricably linked. So, mm. And I, my, um, my basic uh, philosophy I talk about the four legs of a table, and that's how I build my books. The first leg is go there, wherever there is. So that meant for the Lombardi book, turning to my wife and uttering the immortal loving words, how would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter? <laughs> uh, but we did. and it made She's all a good the, sport. She's a great sport, and she's also my... Uh, videographer, photographer, friend maker, so it makes everything go much better with her there. Um, so, but we also, you know, I paid, a, paid her back by going to Rome and to Puerto Rico and uh, Kenya and Vietnam for other books. Um, but that's, the, you know, just to feel the place that I'm at is very important to me and spend as much time as I can. The second leg is archival research. So for this book, I visited 14 archives, uh, the Walter Ruther uh, Archive and Library at Wayne State University is the best collection of labor archives in the world. And it was there that I got not only Ruther's papers, but also a lot of the archival material on the Walk to Freedom, um, the papers of the mayor then, Jerome Cavanaugh, and the police commissioner, George Edwards, were there at, the, at that library. The Benson Ford Research Center at Ford was great for a lot of the Mustang and other stuff, as was uh, a, an archive at Duke University. They have the best advertising archive in the world, and all of J. Walter Thompson's papers were there, and that's where I discovered sort of the inside story of the marketing of the Mustang. Um, so archives in the Detroit Public Library, several, and including here at the University of Michigan, the Bentley Historical Library had the papers of Reverend Franklin, of Governor George Romney, Mitt's dad, who was the governor of Michigan then. And, and a civil rights and a, proponent. Yes. Uh, so that was very important here as well. And then um, the third leg is interview people. You know, this book took place a half century before, so some many of them are gone. But, but everyone I could find who was r- willing to talk, I interviewed on, you know, over 100 people. And then the fourth leg of my table is sort of mystical, but it's look for what's not there. It's sort of like, huh. you know, there's always an incrustation of of mythology around a story, and I try to break through that and find something beyond that to tell the the real story. And so that that's sort of my the way I approach a book. And then the next aspect is what do you do with all of this? Um, so many people I know who aren't write professional writers. Um, struggle with having how to organize their information, and they feel overwhelmed by it. Um, luckily, I never have that 
problem just inherently. As I said, I'm so bad at everything else. I, I'm good at this. I know how to weave stories together. But I also believe that organization is the key, that you can't let the material overwhelm you. So every uh, hour I spend organizing my material saves me three hours of writing. And so even though I'm sort of disorganized in the rest of my life for my books, I've got it down. You know? How do, what does that look like then, David? The well, it's changed over the years. I'm still essentially completely old school. But for my first three books, I used index cards. And they were you know, categorized and cross-indexed, and there were thousands of them for every book. Um, I've moved away from that, um, but it's, I still don't entirely use uh, whatever the most modern uh, you know, web form of organization is. I still use real paper oh. <laughs> uh, and uh, real three-ring binders. And, um, uh, but it's all there, and I, and I, I've, I transcribe all my own interviews. Uh, because it gets ingrained in my mind that way. If mm. I have someone else do it, it's sort of alien. But if I've listened to the voice again, it it becomes sort of part of me. Um, and uh, I, so I use a lot of the hands-on process in the organizing, so that it's not. It feels organically part of of who I am during that period that I'm researching the book. And then finally, when do I start writing? Well. For some reason, my books tend to take about three to three and a half years. That's just my rhythm. And it's usually at some point in the middle, and I don't know when, but I it, I feel it. I start writing. Um, oh, so researching. After, of just like research for a year and a half, half. Maybe, yeah. yeah. And then I'll start writing, and then I'll keep researching until the very last day of writing because when you start writing, you see where the holes are or for some reason – your muse takes you to a place you weren't expecting to go, and so I have to go research that part. Um, but that that's sort of my whole process. And is that part, what you were just talking about, David, is that the mystical, like the fourth leg a little bit? Yeah, like When a you're bit. saying the discovery sure. part, like you can only find that once you're well into it. Well, or... Yes, and also the connections. I mean, I had no clue when I was starting how these different threads would sew together. And once I saw where they were, like at the Walk to Freedom when Barry Gordy records it and, and Walter Ruther is walking yes. arm in arm with King, um, and there's so many of those elements, how, how the police chief's uh, motivations connected to, the, to his fight against the mob in Detroit. I wasn't expecting to write about the mob, but it came together, and it came together with the Detroit Lions um, and the... The Gotham Hotel, which was the sort of social center of African-American life in Detroit until it was raided by the police. All of these threads started to become, started to just become in focus as I was, actually as I was writing more than as I was reporting. And you start. Uh, I wonder how did did you when did you know you were going to start with because you mentioned the Gotham Hotel being raided and then also with the 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 twin event well well yeah. you you pair it with the Ford Rotunda yes. burning down on the very same day. My first intention was to start with the Motortown Review leaving and the Detroit Auto Show um, opening at the very same uh, few days in October of sixty two. But then I realized that to go from there to two other events that were more of a sort of shadows of decline wouldn't have, would have sort of been a false start. So even though chronologically 
I, I start in November and then go back to October. It works, I think, in a more clear uh, pattern that way. So, so, I, so then I decided, okay, I'll start with these two events that happen on the very same day and both foreshadow sort of an end of, of something. So the Ford Rotunda, this incredible uh, architectural tourist attraction out at Ford, um, burns down on the very same day, November 9th, that the uh, police and the IRS invade uh, the Gotham Hotel, the center of cultural Africa, Detroit African-American life, on a gambling raid and essentially wreck the hotel. So these two things are dying at the same time, autos and, and some aspect of, of the traditional African-American presence in Detroit. And that's where I start the book. And then I go to October uh, and a few events a, a month earlier. And that does, I can see how that does seem necessary because you're, you're talking about all this creativity and creation throughout the book, but right. that destruction at the beginning is... Yeah, it is foreshadows and it comes back a few times throughout the book. And so I, uh, it just it seemed like the rhythm was better that way. So, you know, I probably spent a few weeks deciding which way to go, which, which, which of those chapters to start mm-hmm. with. And that one, in the end, uh, just seemed to me told the story most clearly. Yeah, because I'm trying to imagine it further on. It's interesting right. to think about if you'd made that choice. It would have been an interruption. To- it would have been. Think, it, yeah. it would have felt like a yeah. full stop almost. Right. Yeah. And then whereas the other had this momentum gathering and you could point to it because you had established it, uh-huh. but you didn't have to, right. to go into it. <laughs> yes. That's interesting. Right. It's so, yeah. It's and that's what I love to do is to figure out how to weave things together. And when you know you've got it, then it's like a song. Yes. Um, it's, you know, I write nonfiction. It's all entirely fact-based and heavily researched, and there are notes in the end of my books. Um, but but there is a, um, there's something to the process of writing it that, that, um, that I love. So I don't, I don't do long uh, outlines. I do outlines, but, but, but I have friends who do like 50-page outlines for a 50-page chapter. And I don't do that because I want the writing to somehow have an organic life of itself and take me places um, that you can only do through that creative process. Yeah, you can't tamp it down too tightly, right. can you? Yeah, I don't, well, some people could do that brilliantly. That's not the way I write. Well, because it wouldn't be the fourth leg of the table. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <sighs> well, let's let's take a short break, and then when we come back, um, would you read part of sure. the the book for us? Yes. Okay. Today on Living Writers, David Marinus is here. His book, Once in a Great City: A Detroit Story. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. If you're just tuning in now, I'm so glad you did because you've caught David Marinus here on Living Writers. Um, his book, Once in a Great City, a Detroit Story. And there's a little bit of sort of a, a Living writer scoop now because David <laughs> has agreed to read <laughs> From the book, and and you're not always doing this uh, on on their book tour. No, then. I tend not to read too much. I'd rather just tell stories. Than <laughs> sometimes, I, if you read, people glaze over after a while. But I'm going to read the last paragraph of the book and set it up. This is um, May 22nd, 1964. It takes place right here. Um, LBJ was supposed to come to the. Uh, Detroit Auto Show in 62, but he didn't get there because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. John F. Kennedy was supposed to deliver the commencement address at the University of Michigan here in Ann Arbor in 1964. Obviously, he didn't make it because he was assassinated. So LBJ came, and he he flew to Detroit Metropolitan Airport, was met there by Henry Ford II, who endorsed him, uh, the first time this lifelong Republican endorsed a Democrat. <laughs> Walter Ruther, the United Auto Workers labor leader, is there. LBJ declares Detroit the herald of hope for America, the engine of the economy. All of this promise. Then he goes to here to Ann Arbor and delivers the Great Society Address, um, you know, which also is a, a, a message of hope. And so I end, and then he goes back to the airport. And this is how I end the book. It all looked so promising, Mayor Kavanaugh remarked to LBJ, as Air Force One lifted above Detroit. The reference was to political prospects, but the context was larger. In the urban landscape below them stood Henry Ford II's glass house and Walter Ruther's Solidarity House, and Diego Rivera's muscular Detroit industry murals, and the River Rouge complex churning out alluring new Mustangs. Receding into the distance were Barry Gordy's recording studios, where Motown was rollicking in Hitsville, USA, and the wide lanes of Woodward Avenue flowing south past the Greystone Ballroom and the Fox Theater and on toward Cobo Hall, where Martin Luther King first dreamed his dream at the water's edge, as barges freighted with iron ore and automobiles budged up and down America's busiest working river. Herald of Hope, President Johnson said they would just have to wait and see. We all know what happened after that, and of course the people at that point didn't know what was coming. Thank you for reading that, David. I mean, I'd love that you end on hope, so I don't mean to be here so so thoughtful and sort of um, somber. Um, well, it's you know, I mean, it's it's an American tragedy what happened to Detroit in the ensuing decades, and uh, so this is right at that point where every all of that trouble is coming. It feels like there's a book in that too, because it feels like how how did this country let this happen? Yes. To this great city. Yeah, I, th- I think this is my book, but I think there are other books definitely, and some have been written, um, and uh, there's more to write, certainly. Yeah, it, that's the thing. I guess Detroit is still this place of creativity, no matter what, and creation. Like, there's more the ideas, like what the connections, what we can learn, yeah, the, uh, what we can make. Paul Clemens, a novelist, who, or a writer, I'm sorry, not a, who uh, 
did one of the reviews in the New York Times of the book, and you know is is a Detroit guy in a sense. Because um, worked in the auto industry, yes, um, and he said you know that that Detroit is the microcosm of America in so many ways, and so you know that's why we keep writing about it. And maybe yeah, maybe we all better think <laughs> a bit more about it too, yeah, right? Yes. And and um, and not abandon. Ed, I guess. And people aren't. People are coming. People are. So. And people have stayed. And, you know. Yeah. One of the tricks now is when people your age come to Detroit, it's got all of these great things. But then if they get married and have kids, will they stay in Detroit? And so, you know, you, these are really seemingly intractable, intractable problems in terms of, you know, public education, school systems and so many urban centers. But but uh, there has to be a really strong new effort to deal with that, to keep these cities vibrant. In your book, David, when you mentioned the Detroit public school system, um, it was especially, like, I, I think that's where, I mean, and now you mention it here, I really do believe that would be a, a place to start infusing more money into it. Because Detroit public schools, there can be, for example, Bunch Elementary School on the east side has not one art teacher for a whole elementary school yeah. that has was collapsed from two elementary schools. Um, you know, and then there's not even one art teacher. No, it's criminal. School. I mean, I, I, that's particularly close to my heart because I think that schools really miss out when they don't give enough attention to arts and music and all of that, which, you know, I mean, a lot of kids, that's where they have their creativity and you have to encourage it in every level and manner. And what you were saying about Motown. Motown yeah. couldn't have been without Grinnell's pianos and family and homes. And public school teachers. And yeah. public school teachers, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wondered, um, when you were researching this, David, did you ever meet or, t or hear stories that involved Grace Lee Boggs, who just passed <clears throat> away recently, but who's an, a, a very meaningful Yes, uh, she makes a cameo appearance in the book. Um, I, you could write a whole wonderful book about Grace Lee Boggs, and I hope someone does. Um, in the book, she's um, sort of, uh, during the period when the Walk to Freedom is being organized in the few months after that, there starts to be a, a somewhat of a rupture um, within the, the progressive community between black nationalists and traditional um, civil rights people, sort of, sort of represented by King and Malcolm X on a larger scale. And Grace Lee Boggs and her husband were more in the black nationalist camp in that period. So I, I touch on that somewhat. Um, but um, I, I didn't give her or couldn't give her because of the 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 uh, themes of this book it just w it would have been uh, you know uh, not the right book for that but I did come across her I have studied her I think she was an amazing woman. Um, interesting that you do mention Malcolm X because he wasn't he also known as Detroit Red at some point. And he lived in Detroit briefly. His brother was the head of the uh, uh, Nation of Islam Mosque in Detroit. Um, and he was, his nickname was Detroit Red, yes. So are all these facts, like, so when you finish uh, this book, like, let's say, let's go there for a second, David, yeah. Once in a Great City, a Detroit story, is everything still, like, do you feel like the threads, you've finished the last line, you have LBJ um, lifting off in an airplane, leaving the city, but seeing it, and, and do you feel like it's over, or are all, all these characters and research and that's been sort of with you for three and a half years or so. Uh, what happens then? Well, you know, um, this will sound self-serving, but 
but I try to write books that last. And I try to write books that have a, an effect beyond just selling the book or just um, making something popular briefly. So that my Vietnam book, it you know, it came out uh, more than a decade ago, but the soldiers from, the, who, from the, that book who survived the battle adopted me as one of them. I still had, you know, it had a profound effect on their lives and on a lot of people's lives. Um, I have a lifetime pass to Lambeau Field in Green Bay because of my Lombardi book. In Puerto Rico, you know, they love Clemente and that, and my book has a profound meaning there. And Detroit has sort of adopted me now. So the, it, 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 the books have a, have a lifetime well beyond when I finish writing it. And that's what I try to do, to, have, to write things that have a larger meaning. And, and um, you know, even as I'm trying to write the truth, and that's the most important thing to me, I also want them to have something deeper to them that, that touches people in a way that can change lives. And sensing the story that needs to be told. I, I start um, oh, with stories that, that affect me because it's only then that I can feel it. So, you know, people can write a, a, a bestseller about some, you know, Benjamin Franklin or about World War II or a lot of different, you know. But if I don't feel it deeply, if I'm not obsessed with it, I can't write it. And so, you know, then I just hope, well, if I can write it in a way that, that uh, emotes that, sensibility and feeling, then it will touch other people. And David, how, and it does, it, thank you for writing this, this book. Um, how, how does it feel to be sort of uh, entrusted with being a guardian of like Barack Obama's story, for example? Well, there'll be, uh, you know, how many books have been written about Abraham Lincoln? Over a thousand. And I think in the next Century, there'll be many, many books written about Barack Obama. Mine is one, but it's in a continuum. There'll be other books coming after mine. Um, Because what do you think about that? Because that's actually quite a historical responsibility in a way. Even though you're being modest, I try not to. I try not to get nervous about that. And and so what I can try to do is find the truth, and if that will hold up. but clearly, there's parts of people's lives that come out 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years after that I couldn't get to yet. Um, How do you balance the truth with power? Wh- which power are you talking about? Maybe writing because these people still are alive. Well, that's, uh, that's a great question, and that has to do with any biography. I've written two biographies of people who are dead and two who are alive. And the two who are alive were both president of the United States. <laughs> So what, what I try to do is say they're not there when I'm researching and writing the book. Because if I were to sort of pay attention, too much attention to the fact that Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were president while I was researching and writing, then I could be easily swayed by whether they're up or down at a given moment. And if I'm trying to write for a history, write something that lasts, I have to ignore all of that and just try to figure them out in a way that isn't necessarily explaining them at that moment, but can explain them in the long term. And so that's how I try to deal with that. And are you also talking to them as well? Because I'm, I'm thinking about your archives, but you also, you were delved into the archives for once in a great city, but you said you interviewed over 100 people too. For Clinton, I over, interviewed over 400. For Obama, it was in the several hundreds. Uh, I did interview Barack Obama in the White House. 
Bill Clinton, for a lot of interesting reasons, was I talked to him eight times during the 1992 presidential campaign for larger stories. But once I started writing the book, he didn't want to talk to me. Not because, I mean, I definitely was not a right-wing conspirator or anything, but um, so that was slightly different. Um, but I got a lot of his letters from his whole life, and that, that was probably more valuable than, than an interview would have been. Um, but yeah, the larger point is try to pretend they're not there. Just deal with them as historical figures, even if they're president of the United States at that moment. David, is there, going back to your book, before we sign off today, Once in a Great City, a Detroit Story, is there anything about this that still that you're still wondering about, this span of time? Like, is there anything that is... Well, um, there are people that I didn't interview that I would have loved to, you know, Aretha Franklin herself. Uh, she's difficult to, to, get, to pin down, you know. Diva comes to mind, and even though she's the most, you know, ethereal, soulful singer in the world, she's not easy to, to interview. She was uh, just singing for the Pope. Yes, I know. Uh, I wish she would have sung for me. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, I, I, I understand the limits of any book, so, but I, I'm a diligent researcher, and I try to get as much as I can and then deal with it from there and tell the story. David, thanks so much for talking with me today. Uh, and, I really and, loved it, too. Thank you. And come come back anytime. All right. You've that's got a, a deal. You've got <laughs> another home here at WCBN-FM. Um, thanks to everyone for listening out there. Hey, hey David, where are you, what are some places you're going to be going in the, uh, future dates here? Well, uh, on November 11th, I'll be at the uh, JCC, the Jewish Community, whatever it is, uh, event. Uh, I'll be speaking that evening uh, in suburban Detroit. Oh, great. And then the next day I'll be, uh, I hate to say it, but uh, here, but I'll be up in Lansing yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking at the uh, Central Lansing Libraries on, on November 12th. So 11th and 12th, I'll be back in the area. Oh, wonderful. Well, it's always good to see you. I'm saying always good to see you. I hope to see you again, well, David. I hope so too, um, today on the program, David Marinus, his book, Once in a Great City, a Detroit Story. Thanks for listening, everyone out there. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. right and connect, reaching for the end zone, touchdown Michigan, Amara Darba. Gardner takes the hand off to Smith, looking, firing, Jake Buck, one-handed catch, he caught it, unbelievable catch.
happy Wolverine Wednesday here at the Daily Sports Report. You are listening to uh, myself, Zach Shaw, Maurice Fabry on the other side of the glass, and Jeremy Parks also joining in. Uh, as always, on Wednesdays, we talk Michigan sports, talk about the Wolverines, uh, and we'll start with hockey. They they finally played a game. Uh, Morris and I were there. I think Jeremy uh, was also there. Uh, they started off 2-0. They, they beat Mercyhurst. Uh, not the toughest competition, but after starting 2-5 and five last season, uh, to get two in the win column is good for the Wolverines. That's really going to help them. Uh, they Their non-conference play has doomed them in three straight seasons. And, Morris, you were there. You were on the call. Uh, what did you like about this hockey team? Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to confirm that it is Morris and not I, Maurice Fabry. You, you said I, Maurice on the intro I, I, and I, I just wanted to mess. Yeah, I I really didn't appreciate that at you. all. Second of all, I don't know if Jeremy's was there. I certainly didn't see him from my vantage point in the broadcast booth. So a few fans. I think 